Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally, and it's all because of my incredible guests. I feel incredibly fortunate to spend time with people who are at the top of their game and who are passionate about helping you achieve your goals in both your personal and professional life. And my guests hold nothing back. They show up here to share the secrets of peak performance. And I know you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take your life and business to the next level with my guest. And my guest today is Peter De Silva. He's an executive, chairman, board member, community leader, Harvard senior fellow, and a best-selling author. In his book, Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table, The reader is able to follow Peter through his 35-year personal and professional leadership journey as he develops from an aspiring leader, that's an important word, aspiring leader, to a nationally respected financial services industry leader. Now, Peter had a seat at the table with trailblazing leaders and industry icons during some of the most tumultuous tumultuous events, I can do it, in recent financial history, including the 2008 financial crisis. God, I remember that. I'm in southwest Louisiana, and I would see bumper stickers that would say, last one out of the state, turn off the lights, and they weren't kidding. And also a rapidly consolidating industry and a global pandemic. You know, life's been interesting recently, hasn't it? So an unexpected series of corporate buyouts forced him to re-exam his role as a business and social impact leader. And then, as I said earlier, he went on to become a Harvard University Advanced Leadership Initiative Senior Fellow, and I'll get him to talk about that. And he also had to come to terms with his Charcot-Marie-Tooth CMT disease, which is a debilitating neurological disease that he kept private for decades and today he is a very powerful advocate for CMT and his story helps readers find purpose in life's third chapter. Peter, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. Thank you for the book. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Denise. I'm delighted to be with you today. This thanks. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I don't know why. It just took me aback. I appreciate that. So I've got the book in front of me. I've been reading it. I always read the book just before you know, the week before I I get to interview somebody, so it's fresh. Mm-hmm. Tell us about you, and then we'll we'll get into the the points that you really really want to share with our audience. I mean, is there anything yeah, in there know, that that I I completely missed, and you'd like to make sure that people understand about you? No, I think I think you you encapsulated uh, the last sixty one years pretty well. I would say that, you know, when I, I grew up in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, which is a pretty small community in southeastern Massachusetts, and, you know, we were a great family, but I like to say we had everything we needed, but not everything we wanted as a, as a family. And that sort of set the tone for my life in terms of my parents taught me very early about 
hard work and ethics and integrity and not to be afraid of hard work and not to be afraid of taking risks uh, in, in my life, some of which we can discuss maybe a little bit, a little bit later. And so, you know, I had that really wonderful upbringing that sort of just began to, to, to create this person that I ultimately became. Uh, and then I had a big decision to make, right? So here I am sitting in a wonderful but relatively small community, and I didn't think I could achieve my dreams there. I just felt like, you know, it's a little too small. And so I took my first big risk in life, and I actually moved to Boston 60 miles away. And you'd think my parents <laughs> thought I was an absolute rebel. An and they'd never see you rebel. again, right? Like, oh, my God, he's lost to us. No, they never see me again, and how could I do this? And, <laughs> right. you know, there are four four of us in the family, and, of course, the other three all live within a mile of each other even today. Um, so I was I was kind of the rebel in that regard. And you should have been there the day I went home and said I was moving to Cincinnati. That that didn't go over so well. <laughs> but the point being that, you know, my upbringing really was a wonderful way to set the table for me to go off and have a, a good career. But it took some risks and it, it, it took some, some opportunities and it took me having to move my family three or four times in order to have that measure of success. And so, you know, we can talk about taking risks and all during our time together today, if, that's, uh, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I think people don't think about this. We all think we're bulletproof, especially when we're kids, right? I mean, we just know that if we get hit by a speeding car, we're going to jump up and shake our fists and say, hey, come back here. I want to kick your butt. <laughs> then we learn that that's kind of not true. But right. we always think that, you know, I got this. I've got this. You know, what can go wrong? Oh, God, never ask that question. I've learned not to say that one out loud. <laughs> you <got laughs> You're just right. asking the universe to say, here, here's a big heaping teaspoon of what could go wrong. You're welcome. But well, it's interesting, so... Denise, because, because, you know, one of, my, one of my principles I've adopted over time, it's not one of the core ten, but one of the tenets, I guess, is that, you know, you can control events, you can influence events, and there are other events you can neither control nor influence. And, and I've learned early on where I am operating on any given moment, on any given day. Which zone am I in? Am I in the zone where I completely control the event? What time am I going to get up in the morning? What clothes am I going to put on today? You know, I control it. I can, I can make it mine. There's a lot of things in business, though, that are really about influence. I like to say that, you know, what's the, what's the real purpose of a meeting anyways, which is to try to influence others to see, maybe see things your way or, or, or to see things other, other people's way. So, you know, I spend most of my day, my business day, in the influencing category. But the most destructive, the most destructive place for a leader to be on a regular basis is in this third zone. I call it the punting zone, which is you neither have control and you can't even influence the outcome. And so, you know, if you're spending way too much time over there worried about things you don't control or your influence, one, you're not going to perform real well, and two, you're going to be a pretty miserable person. And so I always encourage folks to control the events they can control, influence mightily whatever you're able to influence, but stay out of that third zone. It can be very destructive. It really can. And these days, people – I've said this before. I'll say it again – it just seems like the entire world right now is operating under what I can only term a, a low-level sense of dread. It's not good. Mm. It really isn't. 
But here's where kind of what you're talking about mindset comes in. Can I impact this? No. Well, leave it alone. Can I do something Mm -hmm. about this for myself and for those I love? Sure. We'll go do that. But you have to be very aware these days of who you are, where you stand, and what you're bringing to the world. Yeah, you're spot on. You know, I, I think about the, the tragedies that we see day in and day out now, the, the shootings, the senseless violence yeah. that we see. And, you know, the most recent, of course, in, in Nashville just this, this week. And I think about, can I, can I control that? No. Can I influence? I have a voice. I, I can use my voice to influence where I, where I can. Um, but, you know, I, I know that I don't control that. I don't influence it. But I have to use my voice. And I hope that more Americans will use their voice for those sorts of issues. I think people are starting to kind of come out of, I don't know, it's a man-made stupor is the only thing I can come <laughs> up with and, and paying attention to what is going on around us in our, our own neighborhoods, globally. And, you know, I'm constantly saying, don't complain about it. Do something about it if you can. If you're just going to complain, it's kind of like not showing up to vote and complaining about whoever got elected. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to use that exact same example. You know, get engaged. Get engaged in in your local community. And I always think if people think about getting engaged at sort of the national or the federal level, no, it's the local school board, if that's what concerns you. It's the local conservation commission, if, if if that's what concerns you, you know. I think there's a lot, a lot of value of getting engaged at the local issues. I mean, great. I mean, if you want to be involved with federal and national issues, that's fine too. But the local issues need really capable and competent and passionate people to help solve them as well. Charity starts at home. You know, this is where you live. This is where you, you know, your pets, your family, your home is. It really is the best place to look around and say, what can I do to help? Where can I be of or what should I get out of the way of? You know, pay attention to your local surroundings, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's talk about 10 key life and leadership lessons because, 10, that's a lot. And I was looking <laughs> through them going, oh, that one makes sense. Oh, that one makes sense. Oh, I don't want to do that one. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about those. <laughs> Well, tell me which ones you want to hit, and we'll stay away from the ones you don't want to hit. That's for sure. No, let's <laughs> let's go through all of them. <laughs> that was just me going, oh, that sounds like hard work. <laughs> I kind of whined a little bit when I got to that one. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Well, you know, look, I, the, the ten life and leadership lessons are, are really – they're learned. They, they were evolutionary, not revolutionary, right? They come from – 35 plus years of being in and around in and around business in one form or another. And I think what makes them somewhat unique is they're from a practitioner's standpoint. I'm not an academic. I, I, I'm not, you know, a, a professor. I live this. These were from my own personal experiences. And honestly, I think that makes them much more powerful, much more practical, and much more usable than some of the other, quote, lists that you see. And that makes sense. I mean, it really does. Because, and I just wrote down what you said about practitioner. That makes sense. And that makes more sense to me than I can even explain to you during this hour. But you just touched on something that has been bringing the bejeebers out of me as I start to write more and write articles and newsletters and, and my book. 
And I keep thinking, how am I going to show this up? Well, you just helped, so thank you. <laughs> happy to happy to do that. But I do think that's a very powerful notion. I Lots of smart people. I just went to Harvard, as you know, for 18 months, and their advanced leadership initiative it was wonderful. But most of the people who taught us had really never been in, in, in the real world. And, and, again, these are real-world principles that I know work uh, because I've uh, used them myself for many, many years. So maybe start with the, the first one just to sort of get going here a little bit, which is yeah, this idea Yeah, work that, your way through them. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll be brief, and, and please feel free to, to jump in and, and ask questions for sure. But this idea that, you know, creating vision and purpose. You know, over the years that I was involved with business, it was always about what's your vision, what's your vision, what's your vision. That was often the first question that you got, or what's your strategy. And there was always confusion, confusion between vision and strategy. And then, oh, by the way, over the last 10 years or so, this idea of a company needs to have a purpose, a reason for existing in the first place really became, uh, became more normal to think about, you know, what, what, is that, what is that purpose. And so I think the main job of a leader, the first job of a leader certainly, is to create that compelling uh, vision and purpose, communicate that compelling vision and purpose, and, and get that out to whoever it is that you support. And by the way, that's not just your own associates. That also means your clients your partners, your vendors, anybody that you work with should understand what it is you and your company or your organization are trying to achieve. They'll be better partners if they fully understand what it is you stand for, what you believe, what your purpose is, and they'll be able to align much more, much more effectively. And I had a chance to work around Ned Johnson at Fidelity. I did not work for him, but I worked around him. And to see how he was able to sort of crystallize this vision he had of a new world of financial products and services uh, through initially through mutual funds and then, of course, in other, in other ways was so powerful to me because I would watch his every move. I'd read his every paper. I would, you know, go to every presentation that I could because I knew there was going to be some nugget, some nugget of wisdom that I would be able to take away and use later in my career, and I was never disappointed. So I think the first one is, do you have the right vision and purpose? And, oh, by the way, it's not just good enough to have it. Have you communicated it to all your stakeholders? See, that's the toughie for a lot of people. It is for me because I know what I'm doing. I know what I have. I know where I'm a subject matter expert. And then I open up that epic blank sheet and my brain just goes, "Eh, let's go cook something. (laughs) It's scary. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, well, you know what? Be a little scared. It's it's okay, I think, to be a little a little scared, to be a little timid about this. But at the end of the day, if you can't conquer this first one, I think it's very difficult to to build a successful organization over time. And you know, we talk a lot on this show about leadership, which is fairly new. I think maybe in the last couple of years, it's really became become something that people really want to talk about, learn teach and understand and leadership has made a a big change from those days when you had a boss now you Mm -hmm. have leaders now there's good good leaders and there's good bad good leaders poor leaders learning leaders i mean we're all at at some level leaders i get to lead myself i lead my cats i lead a lot of people Yeah, yeah but i'm always doing my best to show up 
but I wasn't always that way. I really wasn't. Yeah, and I, I think, really you know, as you grow up, you go, ooh, I'm surprised my mother didn't hit me with a truck when I was 16 years old. Really? She let me live? I mean, come on. <laughs> we well, learn and we grow, right? Well, well, look, leadership is a process, not an event. Um, there you it, go. That's, that's what I was thing. looking it, for. It's a process, not an event. And, you know, when I was younger, coming up in the in the ranks, it was always you're a manager. That word leader really That's wasn't it. used. Right. right. Boss, manager. And, and nobody wants to be, you know, it, we all have a boss that sits in a corner and barks at us. Yeah. Well, I don't because I work for myself, although I do bark at myself every once in a while. But, and you, know, you should. <laughs> people, yeah, I do. But, but the thing, if you're the kind of boss who just – it says do this and nobody gets hurt. You're disrupting everybody around you. Absolutely. You know, I always like to distinguish between management and leadership in the sense that management is about doing things and leadership is about doing the right things right. And and that's the fundamental difference um, between between those two. And there are a lot of people who are, are managers who, who get things done. They do things. They do tasks. They, they meet goals or, or, or whatever it might be. But leaders really understand what things need to be done, and then they ensure, either through their own action or through the actions of others, that those things are done, done right. Perfect. Okay, so that was, by the way, anybody who's listening, when you get the book, and what I have is a draft book, but I'm on page uh, 115, I believe. Anyway, okay, let's go on to the second one, properly aligned strategy, structure, and people. And I think we just almost touched on that. Yeah, yeah, we're getting, we got around it on the last one. But the, the main point on this one is, you know, once you have that, that strategy and that vision and that purpose and it's crystallized and you're beginning to communicate it, every leader then says, well, how do I actually align things to execute, right? So I have to align the strategy and my strategic intent I then have to put some structure together in order to execute. And, oh, by the way, I have to have the right people on the bus, uh, led, compensated, and rewarded the right way in order to execute uh, effectively as well. And so what this one is trying to get at is, and the properly align are the key words here, I have seen dozens, if not hundreds, of leaders come into my office and say, here's my organization plan. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, for what purpose? What, what are you trying to do? What is your strategy? How can you build an organization plan and know what people you need when you haven't even figured out exactly what it is the end state needs to look like? And I always tell uh. them, like, go away. <laughs> when you have those other questions answered, then we can talk about, we can talk about structure and people. And it's a, it was one of those things that over time just developed in my, my leadership style where I'm like, no, you don't start with people, you start with strategy. Once we're good with that, then you can say, what structural alternatives might I consider to execute against that? And only after you have that can you then say, what skills, what competencies, what needs do I have in, in, in the people that I want to carry this forward? And I'm telling you, five out of ten leaders do this backwards. They don't understand that you, you, you have to start with the strategy and then the structure and then the people at least have to do it the wrong way. And see that if you, you know, put that in real life kind of, which we all live in, it's like, you know, building a house, but you're making sure that the paint is already on the walls that don't exist. 
you know, you haven't hired, you haven't bought the land, you haven't bought the plan, you haven't hired an architect, but you're going to go ahead and say, oh, I need this furniture and I need this, and you don't have a clue what that house is going to look like when it's ready to be occupied. Does that sound about right? No, I think you, I think you hit it. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Um, I, I just think this one, young leaders in particular, need to understand that you, you can't start with people because you don't know exactly what structure is going to work to execute against the strategy. So start right. with the strategy, build the structure, and then figure out the people. And then make the really hard decisions, which I've had to do many, many times in my career, to say, hey, you're a great person, but based upon my structure now, your skills and competencies maybe no longer uh, mirror or match what it is I'm trying to accomplish. And so sometimes you have to move on from people who are good people but maybe just not correctly matched for the work at hand. Can they upskill, or do they often just say, thank you, I'm going to go somewhere else? Well, I think that the answer is maybe, and that should be your first question to yourself, which is, okay, I've got this array of team, the team, I've got the structure, I know how I'm going to fit the pieces together now to execute my strategy. That should be the first question. In some cases, I think upskilling is absolutely possible, in other cases, the mismatch is too wide, and, and you probably need to move on. Gotcha. And that makes perfect sense. I've seen it in my own business. Okay, so let's get to the next one, which is, I think, no, we just talked about that. I'm getting in your way. You tell me what's next. No, no I problem I think we got to four. Is, yeah, we're, we're going to uh, we're gonna spend just a second on three, which is about talent. And, you know, there's a war for talent today for sure. And I would argue that this is the most pressing strategic and leadership challenge for leaders today is to determine how am I going to engage, develop, and retain superior uh, diverse, diverse talent. There's much more flexibilities required today when working with uh, – uh, it's imperative that leaders take a, a contemporary view of the talent marketplace, right? And here's my fundamental view. Sometimes people will say, well, it seems like this generation doesn't work as hard as maybe uh, prior generations did. I reject that. I reject that. It's not about how hard one works because I believe that today's employees work as hard as any and, and, and throughout history, but they work differently, right? They want more flexibility. They're happy to log on at 8 o'clock at night and finish their email or whatever it might be. But the exchange for that is they'd like a little bit of free time during the day to go to their child's baseball game. Today's contemporary leaders need to understand that, you know, that, that today's associates need that sort of flexibility. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about remote work uh, over the last, that last couple of years post-pandemic and where, where that's going to go. Uh, I'm, not, you know, I'm not a soothsayer. I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but here's what I believe, which is if a company can't solve the questions of culture and relationships, then I think remote work is going gonna, is gonna to ultimately have to go away. Because my biggest worry when I think about being remote versus being together are can I build my culture with associates that are remote from each other, and can they build durable long-term relationships with each other because you need that in order to affect, you know, affect the, kind of, the kind of strategy that you're trying to affect. So it will be really interesting to see how, how that works out over time. But my point being – Contemporary leaders need more flexibility. Folks today work as hard as they ever did. They just work different, and you need to accept that, and you need to solve for 
how do we build a singular culture and strong relationships in order to maintain the some some measure of remote work and built into that is the fact that we have i don't know if it's four or five different generations all working in space and that's i don't an think any of us point. like each other very much to be honest no, but remember your parents point. would say we didn't do that when i was a kid <laughs> yeah you did you just hit it better but on, and you know what? When, when I was at TD Ameritrade, we recognized that that there were three, four, five generations all working together as folks were living longer, working longer, or rejoining the workforce, or whatever, whatever it might be. And we were very deliberate about making sure that we did, you know, sensitivity training or whatever it might be um, for the various generations because we knew that they had different, uh, you know, different perspectives uh, to offer. So it's an excellent point, but you can turn it into a strength as opposed to a weakness. I think if you leverage each of those cohorts for, you know, what they're good at, right? And, and, and I think you can, you can turn that into a strength and not a weakness. I agree with you. Listen, and you mentioned the pandemic. I was watching, I mean, here we thought that's a couple of weeks, it's three weeks. Didn't work out that way. But I watched, it didn't bother me at all because I've always worked from home. I work virtually. I actually got busier <laughs> than I've ever been, which, you know, good for me. Um, but I watched a lot of people just going, oh, my God. And the word of the year was pivot, which I still can't stand that word anymore. It was so <laughs> overused. But people found out pretty quickly if they didn't find a way to connect and to share and to network, whether it was Zoom or whatever it was going to be, they were not going to have a business or a management issue. They just were going to be out of business. Right. So it was pretty yep. interesting to watch. But that being said, and people are like, I like working from home. I do. Truly, Peter, you couldn't hire me to put me in somebody else's office. I don't play yeah. well with others. I run with scissors. And if you want coffee, you can get it your own damn self. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> you know, I ha- I'm unemployable is what I'm saying. But yeah. I think a lot of people of all the generations that I've been watching and, and sharing it, they like, many of them like, working remotely and they're very very good at it but then like anything else there's always going to be those that take advantage so you have to be prepared to work with with those kind of people you know those kind of different types of personalities is my guess yeah no i think that's right and you have to have clear guardrails you have to have clear oh there you go Right. You, you have to ensure the performance. I mean, working from home doesn't mean you can perform any less. I mean, the performance standards still need to be there. And if they're not being adhered to, then, of course, you take action. So it's, it, you, you're not trying to get less out of someone from working at home. Arguably, you can get more uh, from somebody working remotely because they're more satisfied. I find that to be true with me. When I'm off by myself, I'm an introvert. I'm a highly committed introvert. And solitude has always been my bet. This is where I'm the happiest. I'm not shy and I'm fine around people for 59 and three quarter minutes as a rule. But I find that when I'm working all by myself and I am driven to do something, I get a ton of work done. But that's because I'm married to the process. I'm literally going, I I can build this. I'm going to do this. It becomes almost... You know, where I challenge myself, and that's where I do my best work. And I suspect that there's an yeah. awful lot of people like me who can work from home, manage their children, take the dog to the vet, gas the car, mow the lawn, 
and they're still going to get all of their work done and done very, very well. Yeah, that, that was my point earlier. You know, it's not a nine-to-five world anymore. I mean, that's no. what it used to be. But technology has both created this environment, wonderful environment, where we can plug in anytime we want. It's also created, I think, challenges for folks with work-life balance. And, again, arguably, work-life balance might be harder in a remote environment in some ways than it, than it might be if you head to the office from nine-to-five. But that's not the world we live in anymore. Uh, leaders need to adapt to the reality of, of today's workforce, and I think if those who do will will see a lot of success and those who don't are going to struggle. I'm not sure I, I buy into the term. In fact, I know I don't buy into the term work-life balance. I work all the time, and I'm alive all the mm-hmm. time, so it's it's all one for me. Yeah, I understand. I understand that perspective for sure. I think maybe we just put the word balance in there right. uh, because balance is important uh, for your health. It's important for your physical and psychological health. It's important for your family. It's important for the candidate. It's important for the employer, too, that you have that you have a degree of balance. So we'll take the work life out, but we'll we'll uh, we'll put balance back in there. That's a great way of describing it because I'm a workaholic, but I love, love, love what I do. I'm a nerd in stilettos. I can build literally in my head a website while I'm standing over the stove. I don't know if that's normal or not, but it works for me. <laughs> so, I've never heard anybody else go, you know, claim that. <laughs> let's not go down that path. But, but yeah. I'm looking at all of the different – I mean, you've got 10, which I think are amazing – Really great point. So I keep interrupting you, and I'm sorry about that, but we got through three, and we kind of went there. Focus and finish. This, I think, is my favorite chapter. Focus and finish, or bullet point, if you will. Yeah, I could spend – I'll spend just a minute on this one because it says what it means, and it means what it says. Um, You know, you you have to know what's important, number one you have to then focus on achieving that, whatever that is, and you need to finish it. And finishing is really important. I mean, so many initiatives and projects get started that never come to conclusion. Um, I've seen that in my own career at times. And so you set milestones and you say, okay, well, milestone A, B, and C, we got done. That's finishing. It's finishing a milestone. That's, that's really, really important. But the, the, real, the real essence of this one is to make sure that there are no competing agendas and priorities and individuals going in different directions and teams that are off sort of doing their, doing their own thing. You have to be focused um, so you don't have a, a fundamental misalignment between the strategy, remember, all the way back to number one, the strategy right. and purpose of the organization um, and the actions that you're taking. I mean, if you're doing that, you're going to have a lot of waste, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have inefficiency and probably failure at some at some point so this is just a reminder that know what you need to get done get it done and move on to the next thing i have found that out the hard way you know like you my brain is always in overdrive and i'm always thinking oh i've got oh i can do that you know and i have to really rein myself in but i have found out that if i will make a list very early in the morning and believe it or not i turned this over to jack chat gpt not too long ago and i made Mm -hmm. a list of everything that i needed to do that day without fail and i mean it was a 20 point list which is ridiculous i mean it went from everywhere to writing thank you cards to my guests 
to taking the litter container outside and hosing it down to finishing up a website, getting, I mean, 20-some-odd points. I just went, oh, jeez. So I asked it to prioritize in things that could be done in five minutes or less. There were none of those. It was embarrassing. They had bugged the back of my head for a week, and I hadn't done them. But they bugged me. So, And then I prioritized it again after I started crossing things out. At the end of the day, I went, oh, okay. Now I do it every single day. (laughs) I think that's excellent. Yeah, you have to focus. I had to look at that list and go, well, thank you, chat GPT. (laughs) And off I went. And I was able to go, done, 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 cross something. Oh, good girl, Denise. I love it. You know, it's really easy to get distracted. There's a million distractions every every day. I know you have cats. To, I'm sure the cats can be distracting at times, right? But they're my feline office assistants. They they help. Ah, I'm there surprised you, go. you haven't there heard you one of them, but they're always helping something. I love it. Um, maybe just we'll move along quickly so that for these other ones so that we can spend some time on some other topics. But the next one is really, I think, incredibly important. And this is what developed, helped me develop much more quickly than I otherwise would have, which is this idea that, you know, taking intelligent risks on, on particularly emerging leaders, but all leaders, and maybe just a, a very short story. So when I was a young executive at Fidelity Investments, my boss, Fred, came to me and said, you need to move to Cincinnati. We've got a, I was in Boston we've got a problem there and I'd like you to clean it up. And I said, Fred, I, I don't want to move to Cincinnati. That's not happening. Long story short, I did. And my wife, we moved to Cincinnati. And let's just say that there were lots of issues to resolve. And, and we set about to, to resolve those issues. And then a strange thing started to happen where Fred started to come down every week and he'd come in, he'd sit in his office, he'd read the Wall Street Journal, we'd make a few phone calls, he'd get on a plane and he'd go back home. And I'm like, okay, that was weird, but okay, that's that's fine. I must be doing a good enough job because he's not, you know, he's not riding hurt over me. He's he's he's, he's there if I need him, but um, you know, he's not he's not overly um, oppressive, if you will. So we spent two years. We we cleaned the place up. I mean, really, I think did a remarkable job. And I was invited to move back to Boston. Well, one night I'm having uh, cocktails with uh, Fred's boss, Mark, and Mark says to me hey, Peter, you know, we're really so thrilled with the work you did out in, in Kentucky. Really wonderful job. Uh, and to think, the executive team didn't think you had the ability to do it. Ow. Now, I didn't say anything to Mark, but I tucked that away, and the next morning I walked into Fred's office, and I said, what, what gives? I don't understand what gives. And he said, well, it all worked out in the end, right? I said, yeah, it worked out terrific, I think. But what was that all about? And he's like, Peter, don't worry about it. It all worked out. You did a great job. Everybody knows you did a great job. It's all, it's all good. And I said, but Fred, I have to know, like, what was going through people's minds when I was asked to move out there? And he ultimately said, he said, look, he said, you were young. It was a bit of a risk for us to put you out there. We had a big, big, big problem. Uh, I, I had supreme confidence in you. They didn't know you that well. So it was a bit of a risk putting you out there. And I stopped the mid-sentence, and I said, now I get it. Now I know why you came out. You came out because you, were, you wanted to send a message to them, the other executives, that you were there if anything went wrong. And they assumed when you were coming down, you were helping me, you know, you helped me run the place, which he wasn't. And so I'll never forget that story and that lesson because basically what, what he was doing is building a fence around me. 
he was basically saying, Peter, I have confidence you can do this. Maybe some other people aren't 100% sure, but I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put a fence around you, and in this instance, the fence was him, and I'm going to go down there, but I'm, but I'm not going to get in your way. And so I've tried really hard throughout my career to follow his, his lesson here. And so the lesson is to take intelligent risks on emerging leaders, but build a fence around them. You know, lots of people say failure is a great, great teacher, and it is. Of course it is. You can take those lessons and, and put them back into, in, into your thinking about next time. But I also believe that near failure, near failure is a much better teacher than actual failure. And think about near failure as encompassing all of the lessons and all of the, um, all of the learnings, if you will, that goes along with real failure without all the emotional baggage and without this fear of failing. So I encourage young executives in particular, take risks on emerging leaders, put a fence around them, help them succeed, build their confidence, and they'll be better readers because of it. That was really brilliant, what he did. Thank you for yeah, sharing that it, story. It was. It, it was. It, it set me up for more success faster than I ever would have enjoyed had he not taken that risk on me. Fascinating. You're reminding me of my friend Ben Gay III, who was the last mentee of Napoleon Hill. And something very mm-hmm. similar happened with him for the last couple of years of Mr. Hill's life. He was there helping, guiding, mostly just listening and taking notes. But Ben learned an awful lot from that fence. And I don't know if he ever looked at his fence. I'm speaking with him tomorrow. I'm going to ask. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When I was talking to my, my publisher about this particular uh, part, she said, well, I think people are going to bristle at the idea that it's, you have a fence because a fence is like you close them, you're closing them in. And I said, no, I mean, contrast this. Think of a fence and a, and a horse, right? So think of a Mustang that can roam wherever they want to roam out in the American West, right? That's wonderful, but that Mustang also has a lot of danger. There's animals that, that can come after it. They could fall off a cliff or whatever. It's, there's all that danger out there. My notion of a fence isn't to contain so much, but within that container is to allow them to express themselves allow them the freedom to do what it is that they think they ought to do within those constraints. And it's, it builds this sort of safe zone for them to operate and to function. That's brilliant. Okay, our next one is building, build enduring mutually beneficial relationships. And that's, I think, what you're talking about to some degree with defense. Uh, absolutely. And, and throw the word trust in there too, which I think is – Absolutely, absolutely essential. And you can kind of think relationships on a couple different levels, but but I'll use two here. One, transactional relationships and kind of longer-term mutually beneficial relationships. We all have transactional relationships every day, right? You go to the grocery store and you have a nice interaction with somebody that's that's, uh, packing your bags, but at the end of the day, you both move on. And, And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a transactional relationship. But in business, what I have found it's you have to spend the time to build these enduring, mutually beneficial relationships. Uh, and there's nothing, there's no substitute for it. I mean, my, my life, thank God, is littered with people who I've stayed in touch with, um, you know, over time, and then they'll call me up. In fact, I got a call yesterday, literally, from somebody I worked for three years ago uh, when I was at Scott Trade, 
and he's got another opportunity. He's like, hey, I, you know, are you interested in doing, in doing this? Literally yesterday. And he only called me because he said, I trust you. I know you. I, we have a wonderful relationship. And he said, if you're interested in doing this thing, we'd love to, love to talk to you about it. So I think that this idea of mutually beneficial relationships is so important. And there's one other concept that I'll put in there for your, your listeners to think about. It's what I call relationship equilibrium. If you think about relationships, um, think about a, a marriage, right? There has to be equilibrium in a marriage. I give as much as I get is the basic definition of, of equilibrium. And what happens when in a marriage one party feels like they're giving more than they're getting or one's getting more than they're giving? You get divorced, right, because there's no longer equilibrium. The same is true with all relationships. You have to find that equilibrium where I'm giving as much as I'm getting and I feel really, really good uh, about, about our friendship or our relationship. Think about the friend that, you know, is always the one calling and saying, hey, let's get together and let's get together. And the other, the other quote, friend, it doesn't seem to be reciprocating. They'll go out when you ask them to go out, but they're really not reciprocating. Is that really a, a relationship or, or more of a transaction? Uh, and you have to think your way through that. So really important relationship equilibrium, build those mutually beneficial relationships. They will come back and reward you in multiples over time. Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, there's, I constantly am aware of what's transactional on my end and on their end. And I'm, if I'm okay with that, sure. If I'm not, then I change it. Yeah. And you know, what, what happened to me was interesting. So, uh, you know, I, I left uh, TD Ameritrade after we sold the company to Schwab and all of a sudden, right, the email shuts down. You're not, you're not as relevant as you once, as you once were in that environment. The people that worked for you are now working for somebody else. They have different direction. Got it. I mean, all that's, of course, normal and natural. But it causes you to reflect on, okay, who did I have a transactional relationship with and who did I have a real relationship with? And when the phone, you know, starts to ring from people who want to continue that relationship, that, that's the answer versus those that are more transactional. Hey, it worked, it worked while we were together at the company, but we really don't need to have a relationship anymore. And I'd say that, you know, there are dozens uh, who I still believe I have a wonderful relationship with even after leaving the company, but there are hundreds, I had 5,000 people, maybe thousands of people that were much more transactional. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that happens in life and in business. There we go. Um, it's the same thing. It's just if I, I we identify what's transactional and what's relational. That's the key because then you won't be let down when it right. actually occurs. Okay. So moving, I really wanted to get to these points. Okay, so lead by principles and not rules. Yeah, this is a big one. And this it is. came to me, yeah, it's a biggie. But this came to me by evolution, again, not, not revolution, because when I was a younger executive or budding executive, um, you know, you, you'd, you'd have very strict rules, whether it was what time you come in in the morning or what time you go to lunch or whatever, whatever it might be. That was sort of just the way it was. What I have come to understand is that leading by principles allows for a much greater innovation, much greater creativity much greater satisfaction because if you set principles as the parameters for behavior, 
then folks generally are going to know what behaviors, for example, fit that, that principle or fit that, or fit that parameter. Leading by principles is really a much more enlightened way of managing organizations today. I would argue today's associates expect to have the freedom to act when inside of these well-established principle boundaries. Right? The, contra the contrast, or the contrast rather, is, is a bunch of rules. It's, it's let's just write the IRS code for work you know, with tens and tens of thousands of pages. That just, that just isn't going to work in today's world. And so I would suggest to all leaders that they sit back and sit with their teams early and often and say, how are we going to govern our time together? How are we going to work together in a principled way? And then you do have to revisit those from time to time because, because things will change. Uh, a few people will let you down. You know, they'll operate outside of the, the principles that you set. But the vast majority will actually love working in a more principled and rule-based environment. I agree with you. And I wrote down, you know, leading by principles, but I'm contrasting that if there is a contrast to leading by example. Aren't they basically the same thing? They should be. There should be no light of day between leading by example and leading by principles. If there is, you need to step back and decide if you've got the right principles. Good point. Okay, now we made it to number 10, operate with a sense of urgency. This one had me going, hang on a second, aren't we, isn't everything urgent? And then my second point was, Denise, sit down and have a cup of tea, relax. <laughs> so, no, <laughs> not everything is urgent. Yeah, no, it, I, I get a sense you, you do operate with a sense of urgency, which I think is I the do. baseline. But yeah, well, that's awesome. I think I think that should be the baseline way leaders leaders operate quite quite honest you know if you're not moving forward you're falling behind because somebody else is racing to catch you and they will and and they'll, they'll run right right past you but also the other reason i wrote this one was really to help leaders think about how to make decisions you know part of decision making is is, is a quantitative dimension and a qualitative dimension to it right you've got to go get facts and data and information and, and knowledge and such in order to make good, effective decisions. For sure, and you should do that. But how many times have you worked with someone who has all the facts that can be assembled and they still can't make a decision for one reason or another? And so my suggestion here is certainly go get all the facts that you need to make a good fact-based decision. That's the best kind of decision there is, is a fact-based decision. But then there is this other layer. There is this other layer of you know, intuition um, that I think can be applied and should be and should be applied because sometimes you may look at all the data and it's directing you in one way, but you know something either about the environment or you know something about the markets or you know something about your competitor that says, you know what, we need to be one step ahead. I'm going to use this information, but I'm going to layer that with my intuition and we're going to make a darn decision. And I will proffer to you that Making any decision is better than making no decision, quite honestly, as long as you have the presence of mind to quickly course correct if you find out you were wrong. I'm so glad you didn't say pivot. I was waiting for it. Course correct. I was very sensitive to that. <laughs> I caught that. But, you know, you're right. I mean, when and intuition is a big thing, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I have a computer science degree that nobody cares about. I'm a nerd in stilettos. Nobody cares about that either. Although, you should see my closet. It looks like Nordstrom's threw up in there. It's embarrassing. 
and I live alone. I don't go anywhere, but I love my shoes. <laughs> so that's, there you go. That's a, yeah, it's a personal failing, whatever it is. But but okay. I have learned that, it, and yeah, I do want facts, but I'm not going to dive so deep that I paralyze myself. I'm going to often say, okay, this doesn't feel right. Ooh, this feels good. Let me go find out more about that. And often, yeah. especially when I'm in the shower, that's when God winks happen. I'll get a download from somebody. It's not me. And I'm like, <gasps> and that's where my bathtub crayons come into play because I'm scribbling all over the shower walls. <laughs> and they're great ideas. And I know that once I get out, get dried, or race across the house and fall on my fanny because I have tile <laughs> floors, I write them down. And some of those ideas are absolutely brilliant. Some are just like, eh, put that in the later but intuition is very important. I can't agree with you more. Yeah, I think, you know, people get, or they can, they can get sort of stuck in, they've got all the data in front of them, and they're like, oh, gosh, you know, I need to go left or I should go right. Sometimes you just have to use your gut, and I think the gut is a, can be a very, very, very powerful element of decision-making. Now, you don't want to be an emotional uh, an emotional decision maker. You don't. You don't want that. You want to have facts, and then you layer on the intuition or the emotional dimension. You don't. You can't preclude the facts, but I think it's critically important to layer on the intuition on top of that. I like that layer on. I just wrote that. I'm scribbling notes all over the place. Okay, so we made it all the way through ten. So what else in this book that you? Because I really want to talk with you about. Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. I had never heard of it, to be honest. And now you're dealing with it and how your life is, I don't think disrupted, but how you work around it and make it part of how you you craft your business. But was before we get down there, is there anything else in the book that you really want people to know about? Look, the, as we talked about earlier, the book is from a practitioner's perspective. I think you would find you will find the stories. You'll be able to relate to the situations and experiences that I've, I've had. You'll be able to relate relate to. Um, I think the principles are actionable, and that's so important. And by the way, there is a free gift that, that goes along with the book. It's uh, it's my life and leadership principles guide um, that allows you or helps you, if you will, uh, and take action on these principles. So I encourage you to look at that if you end up buying the buying the book. But you know, the book is not meant, it was never meant to be, um, you know, sort of a, a Peter's life. It was meant to be Peter's life through the lenses of his and those how those experiences added up to these 10 key insights that, I, uh, that I've had. Well, it's a great book. And actually, is it on, is it on Amazon yet? Is it ready? Yeah, it's out. It's out on Amazon. Uh, okay. All the e channel, all the e channels. You can get an Apple Books, BarnesandNoble dot com, Nook. Uh, yep, it's pretty much widely available now. Okay, good. I'm sorry. I think I might be coughing on you. I'm hit my mute button, but I don't, I'm not sure I make it in time. So, let me apologize now. Our weather has been a bit insane, and we've gone from <laughs> 30 degrees one day to 83 degrees the next day, and raining and then sunshine all on the same day. So. My um, my throat is taking a bit of a beating, so I am so sorry. Normally, I'm more aware if I'm going to, you know, choke all over you, but I'm not catching it today. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't think. heard you, so I think I think you're using the mute button very effectively. Okay, well I hope so. Listen, I wanted, 
and I think this is a terrific book. And I agree with you. I mean, on, on so many levels. I mean, you're taking what you have learned through watching people absorbing different leadership lessons, creating your own leadership lessons. And then, I mean, I love the power of building lifelong mutually beneficial relationships. And I say that with a bit of irony because as an introvert, a highly committed introvert, y'all, I mean, my goal is to grow up and be the cat lady on the porch with a rocker, a sawed-off shotgun, and a bottle of gin yelling, stay off the grass. (laughs) Y'all, I have plans. (laughs) But that doesn't mean I don't like people. And this podcast, I created this podcast 15 years ago so I could meet people like you from all over the world. And honestly, when I say that y'all become my mentors, I'm not kidding, and your books wind up in this room, my office, which has got hundreds of books in it. This is my entrepreneurial library. But what I learn from you and from my other guests sticks with me. It really does. I mean, this is how I get to network and connect and share your wisdom with a large audience. So, I mean, Mondays and Fridays, that's when I wake up and go, whoo, let's go to work. Yeah, you know, I, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, and you're doing a great service. You, you really well, are doing you. a great service through your guests and, and your questioning uh, for leaders and business people all over the world. So congratulations. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very wonderful to see. Well, I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. So let's move on. I mean, we've got everybody get the book. I'm telling you right now, the book is Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles. That's a strong word. 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. Okay, let's talk about CMT. Until I met you, I, I had no idea what it was. Or, I mean, I've heard of a lot of different issues that people have, but this, this was new. Yeah, I'll make a I'll make a wager with you that within the next couple of months, now that you're aware of it, you're going to know someone or know someone who knows someone who has it, because there are three million cases of this of this disease in the world and 150,000 cases in the United States, making it the most common rare disease in America. So if you look at the list of rare diseases, you got CMT should be the number one number one disease on that on that list. Um, you know, it's, it has impacted my life considerably uh, from, as, from childhood when I missed my freshman year of high school because I had to have num- multiple surgeries to try to correct some deformities and such, uh, right up to today where I'm losing strength and, and nerve conduction in my arms and in my, and in my legs. Um, but, you know, the way I was brought up, my parents were very clear about this. They were like, look, this is your problem or our family's problem, not everybody else's. You don't talk about it with anybody. You just grin and bear it. You grind through it, and you know that's that's just the way that's just the way it is. And that's what we encourage you to do, which I did for about 60 years. Um, I just said, you know what, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. I'll I'll suffer in silence, so to speak. It's very painful. Um, but I never really disclosed it to anybody. I just decided that it was my, my issue, as they had suggested. Um, but then a couple of things started to change. Uh, one, I saw other family members really struggling with it, my, my, including my own daughter, who unfortunately has it as well. And then I saw my nieces and nephews and my brothers and sisters, and I'm like, you know what, something has to be done here. So that was one of the things that 
that really changed me, I, I think. And then second, I had some experiences where I had disclosed it to just a few people, and the reaction I got was nothing short of supportive, right? It wasn't like they looked at me different or looked at me and, and, and had pity or anything like that, which I was always worried about. It was just the opposite. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Let's, let's get this solved. Let's figure out how we, can, how we can help. So I had a couple of experiences that were, that were positive, I'll call them, and I just said, darn it, now's the time for me to, me to come out and talk to the world about this disease. And I, I concluded that if I, you know, we're all going to die, but if I died and didn't do enough to try and find treatments and cures for this, it'd probably be my life's biggest regret. Um, particularly when I see my daughter beginning to struggle with it. So I joined the group called the CMT Research Foundation, um, which is a group of like-minded folks who are trying to find treatments and cures for this, for this disease. Um, I then raised my hand and said, sure, let's do a $10 million fundraising effort. And I said, I'll, I'll go off and lead that. So I'm leading that today, and we've raised just about $6 million of our $10 million, $10 million goal. So it has been a part of my life. But as my wife has said to me time and time again, my wife of 33 years, CMT is what you have, but it's not who you are. And I will never allow it to define me. Uh, I have it. It is what it is, and I'm going to work hard to eradicate it, but I'm never going to let it define me. That's – I'm almost speechless, Peter. Where can people help with the foundation? Do you have a link where people can go to donate? How are you raising funds? Yeah, we, we sure do, and uh, maybe after the show I can I can send that to you. But if you go to cmtrf.org, uh, you can absolutely make a contribution if this uh, if this moves you to do so. Absolutely send me the link, and I'll get that out to my audience. So, Peter, we are just about – well, we've got two minutes. I told you this was the fastest hour on the Internet. Where can people find you? And is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we must end this delightful and enlightening conversation? Well, first, Denise, thank you for having me as a guest. It has been my delight, for sure, to make your acquaintance and spend some time with your audience today. Uh, you can find me a couple different ways. Uh, I have a website, which is set up around the book, but peterjdesilva.com, peterjdesilva.com. You can see all the things going on about the book. You'll see my latest blog post. Uh, I just wrote a blog yesterday, which was posted yesterday, uh, about work from home and this idea that culture and relationships will determine the future of work from home. Um, so you might check, you might check that out. Um, I've got a few other podcasts up there as, uh, as well. So peterjdesilva.com, read Taking Stock, and let me know what you think. Please uh, send me an email. It's, uh, that's easy, too. It's just peterjdesilva, uh, doc, uh, Peter J, peter at peterjdesilva.com. Send me an email. And I would love to uh, hear from you. Peter, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. And I thank you for all of the terrific tips and advice and the couple times when I clutched my stomach and went, oh, <laughs> that you have shared with our audience. So before we wrap up today's episode, if you didn't have enjoyed it and found our insights helpful, please leave us a review and rating on iTunes and go find Peter. He's given you his information and he's they're waiting to hear from you. Your feedback helps us and him improve and reach more people on their own success journeys. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with your friends and your colleagues. And thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one. Peter, again, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Denise. We'll talk again soon. 
get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.